I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. If you've listened to the first two episodes of this series, you've heard how the profession has evolved from a period of architecture for the gods and royalty to an absolute machine influenced by the industrial revolution and financial gains of construction. But to many architects, architectural training creates expectations for much more not just for buildings, but for our entire global society. How do you come to terms with that? Economic turmoil and advancements in technology have played a role in the next phase of the evolution of architecture. What could the future look like for architects? This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello! My name is Demetrius, and you are listening to Spaces Podcast. Thank you for coming back, everybody. This is the last part of our three-part series discussing the evolution of architecture. Uh, If you haven't listened to parts one and two, highly encourage you to go back and check those out. I get you up to speed and then come back and check out this episode. In the series, we've touched on a lot of different topics, and some of these we've already covered a little bit deeper. So a few recommendations of past episodes, I would suggest going back to check out our skyscrapers episode, housing, multifamily and affordable housing, our lead and well, and maybe our hospital episode will 
probably uh, fill in some of the holes and and gaps in what we didn't get too deep into in this series. Besides that, I wanted to make a few announcements before we jump into it today. Jason and Michelle will be back uh, to help dig into much more content, starting with our next episode on the slow space movement with Meta Omont from Omont and Plum Architects. Second, if you've enjoyed this series and the show so far, we would really appreciate it if you uh, if you would subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes or whichever podcast app you use, and share with your friends any way you prefer. All of these, especially in combination, helps other people find the show, helps us improve, and and honestly keeps us doing the show. So we'd really appreciate that support. Third, we've started a Facebook community, so we'd love for you to join in to continue the conversations, and potentially we can all kind of get together and hopefully coordinate to make more of a change in the industry moving forward. We've also started a YouTube channel, which on that channel will post clips from interviews that we've done, other special content, and we'd love to get your feedback and input on what else you think we should add to that channel. Um, So email us, message us on social media, all that stuff. And lastly, if you haven't been checking out our Instagram stories, we do a Tuesday trivia. So every Tuesday after an episode comes out, we'll post two to three questions. And throughout the season, the person that gets the most questions correct will potentially be a guest on uh, on an episode. So uh, follow us there as well. And... All of this is connected to our website, so spacespodcast.com. We have direct links to everything. Now, to help wrap up our discussion on the evolution of architecture, we have two guests today. The first guest is a partner in charge of operations at the New York-based residential architecture firm Five Cat Studio. He's the founder of Entre Architect, which is short for Entrepreneur Architect, an online resource providing inspiration and resources for small firm architects working to build better businesses. He writes a weekly long blog, hosts the Entre Architect podcast, and leads Entre Architect Academy, a private online community for architects seeking success in business, leadership, and life. You can learn more at entrearchitect.com. That's E-N-T-R-E architect.com. Please help me welcome Mark R. LePage. Mark, besides your your formal kind of bio, tell us a little bit about uh, your background and uh, and what you guys what you're doing with Entre Architect. Uh, any other information you want to cover? Sure. Yeah. I, well, first of all, I'd, I'd just like to thank you for inviting me here. And I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, a little bit about me. Um, in addition to being the founder of Entree Architect, which for anybody who doesn't know is an online resource for small firms to learn better business. It's at entrearchitect.com. We started that as a, as a blog. I, I'm also the founder, a co-founder of a small firm, residential firm in New York City, actually just north of New York City called Five Cat Studio Architects. I'm a partner with my wife, Anne-Marie McCarthy, who's also an architect. Residential firm doing additions and alterations to you know uh, 
pretty high-end homes here in, in Westchester County. And uh, very long time ago, 2006, I started a blog for that firm and very quickly started writing about um, business. The way my firm is separated, our roles, Anne-Marie and my roles are separated in terms of uh, what she does and what I do. She's the design partner and I'm the everything else partner. And so I do client contact work, I do construction administration, and I run the business. And I love the business. The business is my passion. And so I started writing a blog about architecture. And then very quickly, the next year, started a second blog called Entrepreneur Architect, uh, which was a personal blog. I was just sharing information about uh, business and architecture for myself. So I sort of had a, a, a record of what I was you know, researching and what I was doing. And that blog very quickly uh, formed into a community. And that community, many, many years later, started to encourage me into turning it into something bigger and better. And they, you know, they said, you need to turn this into something, make it a magazine or, or some other website. And so in 2012, I relaunched it. I called it my 12-12-12 project. It was December 12th, 2012. I launched Entree Architect as a resource for architects, launched the Entree Architect podcast, um, and everything else is uh, history after that. And so it's grown significantly. Uh, I'm, it, there's a lot of influence in the profession now, and that's hopefully, you know, that's our goal, is to try to change the way architecture is practiced in terms of business. So that's me and what I do. Yeah. And I'm really excited about this episode, a little behind the scenes. Uh, Mark has kind of stepped in as my my pseudo long distance uh, mentor, uh, talking about the podcasts uh, mostly, but then, you know, listening to all of the episodes of Entree Architect, uh, helping along with the business side. And the second guest is an award-winning architect entrepreneur and founder of 30 by 40 Design Workshop, a residential architecture studio. He's the author of the Architect and Entrepreneur book series and creator of the popular YouTube channel 30 by 40 Design Workshop. Located on Mount Desert Island, Maine, his studio serves as the stage, set, and backdrop for his videos and short films which document the design process and life of an architect. Building a following of 330,000 subscribers and more than 14 million views. You can find out more at 30by40.com, which is spelled out, and his YouTube channel, 30by40.com slash YouTube. Please welcome Eric Reinholdt. I don't think I told you this, but um, you actually inspired me to leave my job. Uh, which was it's your fault, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which kind of, I'll take credit for that. That's great. Which kind of, uh, uh, spun into this whole spaces podcast and everything that I'm doing, um, all kind of started with the, uh, a choice. Yeah. A choice to make, um, uh, film short film that you did. Uh, so I encourage everyone to check that out. And, um, Without further ado, Eric, uh, you want to talk a little bit about what you're doing, all the, the projects you have going, and uh, a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. No, the, you know, it's always great hearing stories like that. And and uh, maybe we'll get into this a little bit later in the episode, but I love that kind of ripple effect of, you know, doing one thing. And, and of course, you know, Mark had a similar ripple effect on me because I remember commuting to work, listening to that 12, 12, 12 podcast and thinking, okay, like, 
let's do something about this. And um, so, you know, a little bit about me. I'm an architect, residential architect. Uh, I run a small residential architecture practice, uh, 30 by 40 design workshop. And I started that business in uh, 2013, so about six years ago. And uh, most of my architectural work is designing second and third homes for people. It's pretty much the entire market here, um, which is great because I've always loved designing homes for people. It's a real intimate process. Um, currently, I'm trying to take on just one project at a time. So one project in design, one project in construction, and then searching for another project. So I have a limited amount of work in production, but I like it like that. I've kind of built this practice model that supports that. And I think there's a lot of advantages to that. Um, but I also do a lot of other things. I've written a few books. So I've written the Architect and Entrepreneur book series, uh, where I kind of talk about this entrepreneurial business model that allows me to live in kind of a remote place. I'm also a creator on YouTube. I don't refer to myself as a YouTuber, but a creator. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I have a pretty popular YouTube channel that's really taken off in the past year or two. Um, and that's named after my business, 30 by 40 Design Workshop. Um, and I kind of use that as a hub to share you know, what I'm doing in my practice and my life and present a real kind of a different model of what's possible in, in practicing architecture. And so, you know, kind of sharing the process behind making architecture. And then I'm working on photography and I've just started moving into product design too. So I kind of have my hands in a little bit of everything. Very exciting. Uh, <laughs> looking forward to seeing all that stuff kind of, kind of roll out as, as you do it. Been following some of the, the films and the, the YouTube stuff that you've been doing as well. Read both books. So uh, oh, definitely, definitely recommend, uh, recommend those. But before we dig into the discussion, I want to wrap up where the profession has come from. And to do that, you have to go back in time. In 1962, Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring, one of the first efforts to describe sustainable development. Forward-thinking groups of architects, environmentalists, and ecologists were inspired, and it seemed to illuminate a new path and purpose for architects. Concerns of conditions caused by the Industrial Revolution led to the establishment of the Environmental Protection Agency on December 2, 1970, to conduct research, monitor, set standards, and enforce activities to ensure environmental protection. Unfortunately, an oil embargo in 1973 forced a 350% rise in oil prices, which rippled through the economy. While it actually resulted in more consideration for sustainable concepts in the United States, it came at the cost of an economic downturn. In the wake of this oil crisis, another recession followed from 1981 to 82. However, as mentioned in episode 2 of this series, the economy turned around behind the rise of speculative development in the 1980s and 90s when the deregulation of the financial sector and a growth in international financing led to a construction boom. Sustainability largely took a backseat amidst the good times, but before you know it, another recession struck yet again in 1991, decimating architecture firms. By 1992, New York City architectural employment dropped 23% from 1990. Jerry A. Davis, managing principal in the New York office of Helmuth, Obata, and Kassabaum, was quoted in the New York Times saying, 
Quote, developers collected architects the way that they collected art in the 80s. There's been a realization on a lot of firms' parts that they need to begin adjusting the focus of their practice. End quote. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. By 1993, the U.S. Green Building Council was established with a mission to promote sustainability-focused practices in the building industry. But it wasn't until the year 2000 that green building concepts really began to gain global legitimacy behind the launch of LEED, or Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. Architects now had funded support to help lead towards a sustainable future. But yet again, a fuse was surreptitiously lit in the shadows as subprime mortgages were issued in mass from 1993 to 2000. By 2008, the packaging and repackaging of these subprime mortgages infected the entire economy and finally came to a head, collapsing the U.S. economy and to some extent the global economy. Well, I've had to think about it a good deal of recent years and... That's Frank Lloyd Wright, back in 1958. Looking back, I suppose that that's the way the thing always happens. Probably it has always been so. And it's a little more obvious in our day because of commercialized conditions and everybody being in a kind of free-for-all to pull out what he can as soon as he can and make the most of it. So I don't suppose it's any worse than it's ever has been. And maybe that's the way it has to come. Maybe that's the way great ideas eventually obtain, by way of abuse. In 2008, there were nearly 220,000 people working in architecture in the U.S., and by 2013, nearly 25% of those positions were gone. Economic turmoil chiefly hindered architects taking up the mantle as stewards of our built environment. Moreover, the speculative environment created a downward pressure on architectural fees and an upward pressure on stress, leaving many architects frustrated with the profession, all combining to spur another phase of evolution in the practice. Increased outsourcing to reduce costs, altered firm structure and culture, large firms acquiring mid-sized firms in lieu of organic growth, and small firms and sole proprietors supporting each other in greater numbers. Furthermore, as Davis suggested in 1992, there's been a realization amongst architects. Many are attempting to reclaim their careers, in some cases redefining what it means to be an architect altogether. Some are taking a stand to focus on their brand of architecture, whether stylistic, environment forward, or something else. Citizen architects are taking a greater role in the civic advocacy of their communities. Beyond traditional practice, some are consulting in an advisory capacity or evolving to educate and problem-solve through other avenues such as writing, YouTube, and podcasts. Some avoid all liability by focusing singularly on design, including products. And on the other end of the spectrum, the architect developer is taking on all the risk to control their own fate. Yeah, it is such a risk. I mean, it's a multi-year risk. But the reward is so huge at the end. I mean, uh, what we're going to be able to do, hopefully, is pay off all of our personal debt from even our mortgages, um, and, and cars, everything, and kind of reset the company as well. That's Lance Psycho of Five Nine Productions. 
the original typology that, that I that I was working for was high-end custom homes. As soon as the recession hit, boom, everybody was laid off. Alex is working on just like planning cities. And all of a sudden cities kind of went bankrupt and then there was no more planning cities. And so our goal has always been to be as diverse as possible. Lance and his business partner, Alex Gore, formed a diverse practice where they practice on traditional architecture, develop products like their training program, Revit Rocketship, host a podcast called Inside the Firm, where they give a raw look into the inner workings of their firm, and do their own development like their current project, Mark II. And the play on that is that um, some of these uh, companies that make cameras like Canon, um, Panasonic or whatever, their test run of their camera will be called a Mark I. So they, they work out all the kinks in the Mark I phase. You know, the analogy also is like into the, the tech sphere where people are Google will put out a beta, a beta test something. Well, well, the way we sort of treated it, we, we go, well, those, all of those buildings, those townhomes, those condos, all of the same kind of typology that we've designed for developers, they've given us great feedback. And then when we got to our building, we did really simple stuff like, okay, all, you know, make sure from the beginning, one of the biggest goals of the civil engineers is both buildings are flat. They don't jog, the foundations do not jog up and down whatsoever. And then ours, and then as architects, how do we give it depth without having to do the expensive foundation work? And then that's where, you know, working with our structural engineer, we had did some structural tricks, um, added, added, you know, certain things on the outside to give it some depth and give it some character and still maintain and trying, you know, trying to get it to be an award-winning piece of architecture. And one of your biggest advantages is for like for our conditional use was and that approval we had to get was we got compliments from the zoning board. As soon as Alex was done presenting, they go, thank you for just being transparent about what you want to do. They were like, we have so many people come in here, developers that just try to like smoke and mirrors the whole thing and get our approval. And they go, you guys made an effort to seriously improve the neighborhood at, at an, not too much of an extra expense, literally just more trees and stuff like that, a little bit more care to the design, um, things that don't cost extra money. And it was unanimous approval. And then the beautiful thing is once we went to our lenders and got approved um, through them is we used, we used those planning and zoning uh, commissioners excerpts from you know, what they said in their compliments in sort of our cell package and say like, look, even, even the city wants this. And it, we think it's gonna be this amazing showpiece because we're gonna be able to bring clients in and what a, what a selling point when I can bring them into the building that we built and they can see, and then I think it's just going to give them a whole other level of trust with us to be able to take on even bigger projects from here on out. Very cool. Give me a little breakdown of the project, what you guys are doing there. Yeah. So it's a, it is a, it is 0.29 acres. Uh, so it's a very small site. It is an infill site uh, from every perspective. Uh, it's bordered. Um, there's only one access point, actually, and all the other sites uh, adjacent to it besides the street where the one access point is are already developed. And now we are about 60% of the way through. We have six of the nine units sold. Um, today is, what, June 20th, 2019? And we've been kind of on fire in the last couple of weeks. Okay, cool. Uh, did you guys bring anyone on to kind of uh, help facilitate the whole project? Alex and I have been flying by the seat of our pants <laughs> for 10 years. And I'm not joking. Um, there's there's a couple of fundamental things I think that helped us not have to bring in, let's say like a superintendent construction consultant. 
So I've been on the job since, since I in construction since I was 13. The flip side is Alex too. So Alex has always been, he's just always been really good with numbers. Um, not so much like hard math or algebra or anything like that, but you can see the any kind of nonsense that's coming through with like, if somebody's trying to pull a fast one on us with, with, with a bid or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and he has a way of somehow channeling and getting us funded to do these things. As you can probably tell, this is a very complex undertaking. But one of the things that Lance learned. At some point, you have to be a full-time GC. There's no way around it. I worry about a like a sole practitioner doing this because if I didn't have my business partner, who is also my best friend and somebody I could just trust to say, no problem, no problem, I got, I got this. Let's say you don't have a business partner, then I think you need to ha- have a, a very good employee in place if, if you're just like a two or three person shop. Somebody who can say, I got your back, don't worry, I'm going to execute all the architecture and you guys come up with a game plan, but at, you know, at a certain point, maybe 30, 40% through the project, you need to be on site almost all the time and and then make sure to get it done. Today's architect can be a lot of things. Ultimately, architects are trained to be empathetic and forward thinking, to solve problems and uncover creative solutions. With the wealth of knowledge that is obtained and the technology that's available today, what an architect does means much more than it used to. Architects can choose a path that works for them, diversifying how solutions for the built environment come to market. In lieu of architecture for the gods and royalty, maybe we've reached a point in the evolution of architecture where the practice is diverse enough to work for all. So let's, uh, we'll start with uh, you, Mark. In your opinion, what does an architect do? Well, that's a pretty broad question um, because architects do a lot of things. You know, there, there, there are a hundred roles that an architect could play in the, in the profession. But I think it comes down to no matter where we're practicing, whether we're practicing on large skyscrapers all the way down to what we do, small additions and alterations, uh, we're problem solvers. That's, you know, that's ultimately what we do. And I think that, you know, our firm specifically, 5CAT, we're working with young families who are you know, moving from the city into the suburbs. They're buying old homes and they're improving them, making them you know, modern and new for their new modern family. We're not only problem solvers, but we're handholders. And that's really where we've focused our attention with our firm is to focus on the experience of construction. It's overwhelming and it's frightening and they don't know what they're, to, what they're going to expect. And I think early on in our careers, we very quickly learned that this is not a practice for us about design and drawings, although that's a very important piece of it. Uh, it's something that we are expected to do in our, in our world, that when somebody hires an architect, they're expecting great design and they're expecting those drawings. And so in order to sort of differentiate ourselves and build a great practice, we've shifted our focus to what we sell is holding somebody's hand and managing that process. And it's kept, kept us out of a lot of trouble because I think when people don't understand and they're afraid when there are those inevitable crises, especially in additions and alterations, there's always those unforeseen conditions. When somebody doesn't know or doesn't understand, they react negatively. They react in a way very defensively and aggressively. 
And so they start pointing fingers and things like that. And when you sort of position yourself as a handholder, that you're the guide that's going to help them through these processes, you can manage that expectation that there will be crises, but it's okay because we're here and we're going to help you through that process. And so those, those issues that come up on every project are no longer issues that blow up into big crises and could threaten us and our business, but we ultimately end up with very happy clients that refer us to new happy clients. And so that's what I do as an architect. And I think that, uh, you know, problem solving is really the, the focus of what we all do. Yeah. Eric, uh, from your experience, how, how would you define what an architect does? <laughs> well, yeah, Mark stole my answer. So <laughs> I'm going to go with his. No, I, I think, you know, beyond problem solving, I think it's creative problem solving. Um, that's, that's really my definition of what an architect does. You know, that's, that's sort of the short answer. The long answer is, and you know, for me, it feels like I do a little bit of everything. And especially, I think this is especially true if you run a small firm. One minute you're acting as a marital counselor, the next you're solving a technical detail, you have, you're called upon by contractors to know every code provision of the zone that you happen to be working in that day. Um, you know, you have to be facile with graphic presentations. You have to be a great verbal communicator um, to present your work to say a planning board or your client. You have to be great marketer. You have to, to find new clients. You have to manage your finances. And so there's all these skills that we're called upon to do. And I, it, it's one of the things that can feel really overwhelming when you're first starting your, your firm too. But I also think that it's, um, it's a real asset for us in terms of moving forward in practice and looking at each one of those, you know, compartmental skills, we use those to sort of orchestrate buildings. I mean, buildings are this great complex system, um, you know, a collection of systems. And we have to make sure they all fit together um, and do it in a really artful way. And I think taking any one of those little compartments, um, you can actually turn that into its own business, you know, um, like Mark is talking about taking this, you know, ability to communicate and handhold and sort of distill ideas down to very simple set of processes or systems that's a real asset to people. And, you know, I think it's interesting to look at this through the lens of future practice by saying, well, you know, wh which one of those compartments could you take as a professional and develop that into a business, you know, apply that to some other uh, practice or industry, you know, overlay those, you know, conducting skills that we have uh, onto something else. And I think that's, that's really um, a really strong thing about our architectural education that they teach us to think laterally and be able to move between all of these, you know, these variety of demands that we have on, on us as architects and use those to, uh, you know, creatively solve problems. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And we're going to dig into that a little bit more, um, that you kind of hinted at is, uh, how we can evolve as architects and, and, do so much more in different avenues and, and like you guys are doing. But I want to dig in a little bit more on this question of uh, what an architect does and then kind of that client relationship. I don't know if you guys have seen, um, there's been recent sort of uh, reports or, or articles about less than, what was it, less than 5% of uh, buildings are designed by uh, licensed architects or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um why do you think that people just aren't sort of interested in, in architects? Uh, Mark, you want to take that one? Yeah, I, I'm not sure they're not interested in architects or architecture. 
I think that um, the industry, the construction industry is dominated by big business that uh, residential, the residential side is majority, most of what's being built, as you mentioned, more than 90% of it is being built by big home builders, you know, and so they're, they're one-off designs and they replicate them a thousand times. We're actually in the process of moving our home and our studio from New York to North Carolina, just south of Charlotte, North Carolina. And when I go down there, it literally, it, it changes every time I go down there. Mm. That, that it's unrecognizable, that it's developing so fast. And so there are the choices for homes when somebody buys a home, most people are just going and picking the model that they want from the developer. They just don't know any more than that. Mm. Um, and so that market is taken, you know? And so unless we as architects develop our own development model and grow it to the size of those developers, we can't take that market. But there's a market there for architects. And maybe that 5 or 10% is only 5% of the overall residential market. But that 5 or 10% is a massive amount of people. Mm -hmm. And so it's a matter of, of what we choose to do and how we choose to do it. I think it's also about telling the, the, the story, each one of us individually as architects, telling the story about what architects do and how we do it um, every day through social media, through their marketing, through their interactions with other people, those individual stories will, will make up the overall story of what architects do and help send the message that we don't just draw drawings, which is what most people think we do. <laughs> they think we prepare drawings. Um, and we push the drawing button in the CAD box and it <laughs> pops out the other end and there's a design. Yeah. And so, and that's not you know, their fault, that's our fault as architects and an architectural industry hasn't told that story uh, to the extent that it needs to be told. And so I think that from a residential point of view, that's the issue. And then on the commercial side, you know, you have, you have the majority of what's being built commercial is probably warehouses and, and, you know, giant, you know, uh, amazon.com distribution centers and things like that. And so that doesn't necessarily need to be uh, handled by architects as well, although they probably should be. Um, but that again is us uh, giving away our our control and our and our abilities to do what we do. And so a lot of that is the, are is the result of the choices that our profession made in the past, and this generation and the next generation are paying for that. But it's also our responsibility as architects to recognize that and take some of that control back. And and like what Eric was saying is expand the definition of what architects are and what we do. To, because we can, there's a huge industry that we have access to. We don't necessarily all have to be designers designing for clients and bidding and building and, you know, preparing drawings. We don't have to do that at all as an architect and still be an architect. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot, there's a lot we can do if we, if we focus on it. That's a great point uh, to kind of repeat is that there's this misconception that just because you aren't doing the drawings and coming up with the design, you're not an architect, um, which I hope we can kind of uh, drive home that point as we continue to talk is there's a lot of other things that you can do because an architect is a problem solver and can do so much more. It doesn't have to be this sort of linear path that's been outlined for years now. But um, Eric, did you have uh, something you wanted to add to that? <laughs> no, just an amen. Nice job, Mark. Yeah, well, well done. I mean, I think, you know, the reason why people go to a builder and they're picking out, uh, you know, 
whatever models on the showroom floor is because that's a, a system that we use to do everything in our life. I mean, when I'm buying a truck, I'm going on the, the lot and I'm looking and to see what's there. And it's really easy to point to that, you know, gray truck and say that I'll take that. I mean, the, this system of buying products, like it exists and there's no reason why architects can't play in that sandbox too. It's just, for a long time, we've chosen not to. So we could we could completely own that sandbox. I mean, it's it's the same thing, you know, uh, with IKEA. I mean, great design, right? Affordable. So people don't know what they're getting when they go to an architect. And like Mark said, it's it's an education problem. And I think all three of us are sitting, you know, here together speaking as people who are united around this idea of education. Like mm -hmm. it's our job to educate. It's not our job to complain or, you know, woe is me. No, like make content, tell people what architects do, show them what we do. I mean, that's the most important thing is just like show the process. And I'll tell you just from my personal experience on the YouTube channel, making videos where I open the studio doors and show people what it's like to design a home or how my thought process, like those are the most popular videos by far. And it's just, it's literally like rolling the trace out on the table and saying, here's what I'm working on. People love that. Like it's educate, it's, they see the value in it. And I get clients that way. And, I, and, and what happens when you do that is you start educating people on the value of architecture, the value of design, the value of natural light and, you know, a healthy home, all those things you get, you start attracting people who are interested in those things, which is a lot of people, it turns out. And I think the more we do of this, the, the you know, the more education we're doing, the better clients we end up getting. And, you know, an educated public is an educated buying public is going to be more likely to purchase the services of an architect. Yeah. And you both mentioned something that was uh, great ideas to kind of, if any, for those that are listening to kind of grab onto is um, Mark, I know you've had a few interviews with people that have become architect developers. Um, so kind of grabbing hold of that control, like you mentioned and, and sort of playing in that sandbox. And then Eric, I believe in your book, I don't know if you're actually doing it or actively doing, but in your book, you talked about creating plan books, uh, sort of that, that catalog uh, mm -hmm. front of, of passing along those options and information. So you're not necessarily doing um, ground up design every single time. Um, so those are some ideas that, that people, that architects and, um, and the general public can start to get used to and architects can start to um, implement as they move forward. So let's dig into that evolution part now. How have you guys seen the, the profession evolve as well as how are you making it evolve through your YouTube channels, your, your podcasts, uh, all those different elements? Uh, Eric, let's, let's start with you. I think, you know, the, how practice has evolved, uh, for me since entering it 20 some odd years ago, um, you know, it's, it's, I have moved through a pretty traditional practice model, you know, trading time for dollars, uh, for 17 plus years. Um, and, you know, finally getting to the point where I finally realized like this, I can't do this anymore. Um, and living in a remote place where, you know, I, I'm living on an Island in Maine. Right. So I, I don't get clients knocking on my door every day, you know, reinventing practice was sort of a necessity of mine. I needed a way to, to not have to accept like these little tiny renovation jobs. Like I think everybody starts there. Like 
little job here, little job there, you know, and the little jobs last a few months and then you have to find another client. And then, you know, so it's just this collection of little parts and pieces. Um, I realized pretty quickly that it was, that was going to be a very difficult way to practice architecture because it, especially as one person, um, cause if I'm doing all that work, it's like 10 kitchens design and 10, you know, projects to manage and 10 clients. I mean, imagine how, how that looks as, as a solopreneur. Um, so for me, you know, the evolution of practice was really, how do I, find the time to design and feel fulfilled with all the things that drew me to architecture um, and have a comfortable, reasonable life and still make a profit and not spend, you know, my entire day and night doing it. And, and the way I did that was to think about, um, you know, architecture as being split between services and products and, you know, the services. Yes, I still wanted to work with clients one on one very interested in having that engagement and dialogue. Um, but also I needed to, you know, have a larger project so that it wasn't 10 different projects. So larger scale project meant larger budgets and those clients don't come along every day. So with one project, I need a way to feed revenue into the business that supports just taking on one project. And so that's where I developed this, this split between products and services. So selling plan sets, is a product, you know, educating people online on YouTube. That's a product in a lot of ways. I'm getting revenue from that, you know, putting information out there is sort of information products uh, around the architecture space. So whether that's, you know, how to budget for your pro project or how to, you know, do board form concrete or a program worksheet or something like that, those products, then, you know, I'm selling those passively and they're supporting the, my freedom to just take on one project at a time. So I think that that split was kind of a critical point in my, the evolution of my business and my thinking. And I think, you know, in general, the practice of architecture, people are moving away from, you know, working for larger firms and understanding that they want more control over their time. They want to be able to control what they work on and who they work with and how many hours a week they work on a particular project. And, you know, I think building a practice model that splits products and services can support a creative life in a way that just going to an office and, you know, punching in on the time clock for 40, 50, 60 hours a week doesn't. Um, I think there's a, you know, that reinvented practice model is really, it's really been liberating for me. Yeah. I think that's a, a huge societal shift right now. We, with the, advent of the internet mm -hmm. uh we've had this huge pendulum swing of as as well as um you know the big box stores everybody's sort of working for this one entity and we've all reached this sort of breaking point or many of us have reached this sort of breaking point of you know we want to get back to that main street sort of lifestyle and sort of get our our time back and focus in on you know what our passion is and and uh craft certain whatever that product may be um so i think we're kind of going through that shift back and and this sort of uh transition of people trying to find their way uh back to to kind of what you've been able to create mark you want to uh add on a little bit with how you yeah. kind of approached uh entre architect yeah and and i would i would just continue where eric left off i think that and what you just said about the societal shift to you know, small town life and, and the way we used to live where 
you know, the, the, the shop owner lived upstairs above the shop. That was the way it was done. The architect lived above his studio, just like I do now. And that's probably the biggest shift I've seen since I've entered the profession with, with the, the rise of the internet. You know, Eric and I started before the internet was really uh, a major piece of what we do. And we saw the evolution of the profession and its effects with the internet on, on that profession. And one of the things that I've seen and I've experienced is the shift to virtual studios, which allows me to live below my home. I'm literally in a home studio that was built below the rest of my house. And that, that happened uh, 10 or 11 years after I launched the firm. We started the firm in the basement as part of the basement. Then our firstborn son uh, came along and started crying and realized we can't have babies and kids, you know, babies and, and architecture in the same environment. And so we moved out to a studio because that's what architects do. We built it out, spent thousands of dollars to have a, a beautiful reception area and a conference room that we ended up never using and, you know, worked from a studio in that space for 11 years, spent, you know, close to $5,000, $6,000 a month on rent and expenses and things like that that have run that. And, but that was the way you needed to launch a studio back then. And then as the evolution of the internet took effect and our society shifted, um, our lease came up. We said, okay, we're not going to renew this lease. We're going to go home. Uh, we built out our own studio. So Anne-Marie has a separate studio somewhere else in the house. I have my studio here. Somewhere and, else. And I, we, we sent... Else. Yeah, hidden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. She's in the basement. Isn't she? She's on the second floor in the, in the, uh, in the penthouse. <laughs> and and uh, which is one of the secrets of staying married and staying partners is separate studios, <laughs> just for anybody who's yeah. listening. Interesting. Um, and, and so that, vert, that shift to virtual studios, we sent our staff home too and said, go work from home. They all became independent contractors. Uh, to this day, we still have one independent contractor that we work with who's been with us for, for decades and almost decades. And this is the way we work. And I believe this is the future of architecture, that when architects start, that's the way they're going to start. They're going to start with a laptop or a, or a, you know, and a, and a uh, Revit package or whatever they use. Um, and that's the way they're going to start their studios. You know, it doesn't make sense to launch a studio from a, from an office anymore. Um, no one ever came to my office. It was years and years of expenses that didn't need to be paid. Um, and from the big, the, the side of the larger firms, that shift is happening there too, although much more slowly. Um, that they have to recognize because your generation and the next generation that's coming beyond after you is expecting to work from home and to have those flexible hours and to be able to integrate their life with their firm. Um, it's just the way this world is shifting. Um, and it's because of this internet and the flexibility that we have to use the tools with the internet to, to, to run full all out successful businesses and be um, productive, successful employees in larger firms, um, that's the biggest shift that I've seen. Yeah. And I think uh, InCarb would actually be wise to support that sort of structure, you know, giving more resources and more education to encourage people to, to kind of establish their own structure. And because that's going to increase license, licensure, in, in my opinion, I think, um, 
and like you mentioned, yeah, those those larger companies will have to be flexible and have to allow people to to work from home because um, it's also going to lower their their expenses as well. Yeah, and and remote uh, internships, there are think that's something that's possible now with NCARB. I've asked NCARB twice about that just to confirm it online. You know, on on interviews with NCARB, I have two two episodes where I spoke with NCARB directly. And both times I asked that question and both times they said that that's absolutely legitimate. You can absolutely do remote uh, internships. As long as you follow all the rules of what needs to be done, you can do a remote internship. Wow, that's interesting. I don't think I got to that episode yet. What has been, since you guys are sort of breaking ground, changing things up, uh, disrupting the norm. What has been the most complex part about the individual uh, things that you're doing, products that you're creating? Mark, you want to lead us off here? Sure. I, I think the most complex part for us as architects, especially small firm architects, is money. Um, I, we're not taught anything about business in architecture school. We're not even properly prepared uh, as business owners. You know, they, they don't even really give us the information that we should be going to look for as, as business owners. And if you're not going to work for a big firm, then you're going to be either a business, a small business owner, or you're going to work for a small business owner. And so we need to absolutely learn about how to run a business. Um, you need to understand how marketing works and how sales works. You need to understand the basics of financial management and all of those things. Um, because if you don't, and you try to start your own firm without understanding the fundamentals of business, you'll either fail or you'll struggle forever for the rest of your life as a professional architect. Um, and so I think that is absolutely the most complex part. Uh, and and you know, that's one of the things that we're trying to help with with Entree Architect is that we're focusing on those fundamentals and trying to teach those, those fundamentals uh, for architects to sort of fill the gap of um, of the architecture schools that, that um, as we're coming out of architecture school in order to provide those specific architects, specific uh, uh, requirements for business, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Someone actually mentioned to me when I started architecture school that I should take some supplemental courses in business. And of course I didn't listen, <laughs> um, but, but I don't understand why we haven't worked that into part of the, the curriculum is just, just basics, just just a couple classes, just to sort of get your feet wet and kind of get you to understand a little bit more about business. Um, I've asked that question okay. uh, to, to multiple people who have the answer, and I've always gotten the same answer, is that they don't feel it's their responsibility to do that. They feel it's their responsibility to educate the architect and teach them how to think architecturally, and that it's the, it's the job of the internship, the job of the firms to teach them business. And it doesn't happen there either because architects, although this is shifting too, are very, very uh, secretive about what they do and how they do it, mm -hmm. um, which is one of the messages that I try to send out to the, to the profession is to open up yep. and be transparent and share what you're doing. Um, and because that will not only help you and the people who are working for you, but it will help the entire profession and will help the profession grow. But I think, you know, architects have to also stop thinking that it's somebody else's responsibility to teach us those things. I think it's our responsibility to recognize that we need to learn those things and go seek the, the resources that are out there to learn those things. 
and it's not fun. We are, we don't like it because <laughs> we're creative people. We don't really want to think about numbers and 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 sales results and marketing. And so we reject it and we just focus on the design, the fun stuff that we love to do. But if you don't focus on the fundamentals and to and build better businesses, then you're not going to have the time and the resources to do the architecture that you really love to do. So if you focus, one of the things I say all the time is profit, then art. And pe when people say that, the bristles on their back neck, you know, their, their hackles go up. What do you mean profit, <laughs> then art? If you build a profitable architecture firm, then you can do all the art that you want to do. You're releasing a whole slew of products this year. Uh, you want to take a second to, to plug a few of those? Sure, sure. Right now, what's happening is that we have uh, a video series, free video series called Profit Tools. It's based on several profit calculators that we created. There's a profit loss calculator that within minutes, you'll figure out the profitability of your firm and what you need to do in order to build a better firm. Um, and then the hourly billing rate calculator that, that does exactly that. It will calculate what you should be billing for every member of your team uh, that, that will include your overhead and your profit. So you can Plug in all the numbers. You just ask, answer the questions, plug in the numbers, and it'll, it'll provide all the information that you need. Um, and we're, we're about to launch the profit course uh, that's a comprehensive everything that you need in financial management course uh, that's going to be launching in the next uh, weeks or so. Yeah. Eric, you're creating different types of products. What has been sort of the, the complex part of, of that? And I'm sure the business side is, is also a complexity for you, but, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about your experience. Sure. Yeah. The, um, so I have a number of products and, you know, my, I've kind of treated my business like one giant experiment. Um, and, and I've really enjoyed that. And I, you know, Mark has talked about this idea, like, you know, business, we don't love business or, you know, it's intimidating. We're not taught anything about it, but I've, I'm someone who, um, you know, yes, I wish I took business classes in college, but I've sort of really enjoyed diving into learning about business on my own, just as, you know, and overlaying kind of a creative filter on top of that. I think it's pretty easy as creative people to find creativity in almost anything we do and business is no, no different. So I've really tried to take a creative filter and overlay that on every part of my practice, including the business. Um, and that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about, you know, looking for holes in the market and places uh, to develop products to fill those holes. And one of the things that I've done with the practice is obviously I have the YouTube channel and I'm making a bunch of content. So I'm writing, I'm, you know, making videos and I'm putting it out there. And what you get when you do that is all this feedback and the feedback says, what about this? What about that? You know, this, it's nothing but questions. And so you get to take those questions and turn them into products that, you know, fill a need basically. Um, so I've been working on a course too, Mark, I, I guess we're, gonna, <laughs> we're competing. <laughs> Here, but um, you know my my course is the architect and entrepreneur course, so I'm kind of teaching how I've created my system, um, you know, to support my life. This split between products and services, and um, you know, I've just found that there is the difficulty in creating these products is um, you know finding making sure you're making the thing that everyone wants, and I think you know that can that can be tricky. Um, so I've really tried to stick with this idea about the minimum viable product, putting the smallest you know working model of a product out there to see if there's demand for it. There's 
people wanting to buy it. It's kind of the Kickstarter model, right? Like I'm not going to make something unless I know a certain number of people want it. So same has been true for, um, you know, physical products that I'm starting to make, um, testing the market saying, okay, this is actually something people want and then going ahead and making it, um, you know, just kind of pulling back when we we're talking about sort of the difficult part of practice. One of the things that I really found difficult, especially just starting was scheduling and managing the workflow. And I don't know if, if that's true for you guys too, but you know, just the idea that clients can put a project on hold or bids can come back too high. Um, there's redesign, postponement, you know, construction delays, all these things. Uh, any one of those things can kind of topple the tower. Um, and, and that, that got me really scared, especially when I first started. And I, and I thought, well, I have to find a way to buffer those things. And, and that's really what led me to start thinking about products as a way to, you know, people are buying products. That's easy thing to, to sell them. Um, so let's take that and use that to kind of shore up the business in these scary times when, you know, client says, well, actually, I, I'm not going to build that house. You know, I mean, as a sole practitioner, you can't fill your pipeline with too many projects at one time, right? So if someone cancels a project, that's a big hole to fill. And, and so really this, this kind of product model, I think supports that, what we've been talking about, you know, living, uh, you know, on your own terms, uh, on your own creative terms and, and being able to support yourself financially. I mean, I'm, I, am just astonished at how much better I'm doing since leaving working for someone else and, and taking the reins and control for myself. It's, it's incredible. And I, and I, that's one of the reasons why I share all this with everybody on the YouTube channel and in my books, because I want everyone to experience that freedom. I mean, it's just, it's been incredibly liberating. Yeah. yeah, just just for just for a record, for the record, Eric, I don't believe that we're in competition. <laughs> I, I I wish I wish there were thousands of us out there doing what we yeah, do. It's so true because because it, our profession needs it so much. So you doing what you're doing and what I'm doing, what I'm doing, and Enoch does what he does, and uh, what Demetrius is doing. I think we all complement one another, sure. and the more we can support one another, which I know you and I do all the time, um, the better off the profession is going to be. So more power to you. I'll be the first buyer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate that, Mark. And I, I love that, um, that there is a community that's starting to build around this sharing of knowledge. And I, and I particularly see it in, you know, on my YouTube channel, cause that's just the biggest audience that I have. But, you know, I get, I'm getting messages from people all the time that just say, Hey, thanks for sharing. Like, no, nobody tells right. us this. like nobody teaches this. And, and I, I think having a variety of voices is, is a good thing. It's, it's very positive. Yeah, I wanted to kind of dig into that. Uh, when losing one job can sort of topple the tower. Uh, you can't, I don't think it's in frame, but I have a whole list of projects behind me. I kind of equate uh, what we do is uh, sort of to football. There's so many different people, different parts. One person screws up, fumbles, or, or anything like that. You can completely lose control of everything and it'll just fall apart. So... Um, there's so many moving parts to what we do. It's, it's a nightmare <laughs> to try and, uh, you know, sustain that. And, and just, it literally keeps me up at night because I'm trying to think of, okay, how much work do I have left to do? When do I reach out to somebody else? Uh, hope they don't cancel on me. It's, it's just, it's crazy. Um, to, it's stressful, to, right? Oh yeah. So um, how many projects do you have going on right now? Uh, <laughs> I have at least eight, I think, right now. Yeah. 
So, uh, sole practitioner. Yeah. Oh, All by yourself. Man. Yeah. Yeah. And then you layer on top the podcasts. It's, uh, that's why I took, we took a little bit of a break so I can try and uh, <laughs> switch back and forth. But, uh, yeah, it's been quite an experience. Um, I'm just over a year now. Uh, so I've, I've made it a year. So I, I so either raise your rates <laughs> or start saying no or both. Yeah. Or build it or build a team. Yeah. So I'm transitioning into the raising rates and having to say no. Uh, I don't, I don't want to build a team just yet, but, um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how things go. So enough about the hard part. What has been, <laughs> what has been, uh, the most rewarding part about, uh, the practice in general and specifically what you guys are working on? Mark, you want to start? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I think the most rewarding thing for me as an architect, as a residential architect working with these young families is our, 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 and this may sound corny, but our ability to literally change their lives that there, I don't believe there are, there's any other profession that has an effect on, on a, on a single individual's life, uh, as much as we do that, that the work that we do can literally change the way kids are brought up, you know, that the, the way they learn, the way the parents are parenting them. And that's just one little piece of, of the effects that our architecture has on them. And any type of architecture that's created has that type of effect on our society. And so that's really the most rewarding side of as being an architect of what we do is, is I love the transition that families have um, and, and the happiness that we can bring to, to young families. On the other side, on, on the Entree Architect side and my interaction with you guys in the Entree Architect community, my most rewarding piece is, is being able to be that guide and mentor and to help other people. It's, it's my passion that when someone emails me and says, just out of the blue, just thanks for what you're doing because it's changed my life. That is my fuel. I just eat that up and I just keep going. It gives me all the energy I need to keep going and to keep growing this thing and to make it a, the biggest thing it can be because I really believe that Entree Architects is not me. It is something that I'm building for the future. It's going to long outlast me. Um, and so that's the most rewarding piece to me. When, when, when I'm walking down the street and somebody stops and asks me for directions and I can tell them where to go, I love that, you know, <laughs> that I can help that person. And so, you know, that's, you know, and I never expected that when I built Entree Architect. I just sort of built it because the community around it told me I should build it. And so I just kept going forward. But the results of that for me personally is that when I get that response that, that I am making a difference in the profession and the profession very slowly is changing and it's shifting because of something that I've created. It's so, it's so overwhelmingly uh, rewarding. Yeah. Eric. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not to mirror <laughs> what Mark said, but I mean, I think we're obviously we're, we're sharing yeah. a common vision here, right? Otherwise we probably wouldn't be talking, um, you know, in the past, as an architect, I mean, there's nothing better than seeing your design ideas realized in the world. Like that's, I mean, that's, it's amazing. To, to, and I especially remember, you know, my first couple of buildings out of school, I was like, well, okay, this is like, I love doing this, but moving away from that being the benchmark for success. And I don't know if this is just kind of, you know, I'm in my mid forties. So I'm kind of like looking at legacy going, well, you know, I can design a lot of homes for people and yes, I can impact a few people's lives. But the YouTube channel, like that 
has been an awakening for me in terms of being able to see myself as an educator, see myself as being someone who can make a difference in this profession. Uh, just my tiny voice amplified online to 300,000 plus people is like, that's an incredible gift. And I think it's, it's one that we all have access to now. I mean, you guys are doing it through podcasts and your blog and all the stuff you're publishing. I mean, th this is an amazing tool that we have this kind of megaphone to change, change the world and really kind of put a positive message out there for young professionals. And I, that's so exciting to me. And as Mark said, like almost completely unintentional. Like mm. I, I started my YouTube channel because I thought, Hey, I'm going to make some ad money. Like it was, it was very like focused on me. And then I started realizing like, well, is this actually helping people? And you know, the, just the comments that I get on videos, like, thanks. I mean, you know, you've changed, you've changed my career trajectory. And just hearing from you, Demetrius, like, Hey, I decided to leave my job. Like that's, I mean, that's like you throw a rock in a pond and there's just all these ripples. And, and to be able to do that is, it's incredibly empowering and it just makes me want to do more of it. Um, and I still love architecture, but I love what, um, what I've discovered by sort of reinventing um, this entrepreneurial kind of business model. Um, all those discoveries have been just, just opened up. It's like you walk through a door and you think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving this, you know, when I, when I was working for this residential firm that I, that I was, you know, a couple six years ago, I left that and, and you think like, okay, I'm choosing between this door and this door and I'm going to go through that door and like, I'm going to be in this room and you, you, you walk through that door and you realize there's all these other doors. There, there's, it's a room full of doors and, and you get to choose what, which one you walk through next. I mean, it's just this, it's an amazing gift. And you never know what those ripples turn into. Cause in my mind, you know, if this turns into something really successful, that's immediately going to go back to my community and to help change lives for other people that may not have anything to do with architecture, but uh, can change in some other way. And what does that turn into? And what does that turn into? Uh, all starting from just clicking on your YouTube link to uh, your, your short film uh, or listening to a specific episode of Ancha Architect that was like really fired me up. Um, so it's really inspiring and same as you guys uh, when I get those emails from people uh, I literally use those words it, it as it's literal fuel to keep going yeah. every yeah. time you get some sort of comment like that so it's a really cool experience uh, going through this evolution of the practice and and uh, approaching problem solving in a different from a different avenue a different angle okay so let's jump way ahead what does the future of architecture look like We'll start with you, Mark. Future of architecture can go in a lot of different ways. There are two doors, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and it could go away if we're not careful. Yeah, I mean, it can literally go away, um, but I don't think it will. You know, I'm an optimist, and I believe that there are uh, that there's that there are evolutions, and I think we're in the midst of an evolution right now, and maybe even a revolution. Um, that this virtual model is going to shift things. That architects. And you know, our firms and families are going to be more integrated. Um, I think that you know, there's a whole list of. I've done a couple of blogs on on 3D printing and virtual reality and drones and robots and artificial intelligence, uh, cryptocurrency. All of that is going to have an effect on our profession 
But I, th I think that taking more control over our own lives are the things that will keep us from moving in the direction of obsolescence. You know, I think that if when we take responsibility for our own lives and our own profession and stop relying and complaining about the AIA and what they're doing or what they're not doing, when we each individually take the responsibility as architects for our profession and build the best businesses we can build and have the most influence we can have on the most people, that is what's going to take over and, and transform the profession. I think development is a big piece of what we do. It's something that we've given away. We were master builders. We were designers and builders. It was the profession is what, what architects did was design it and build it. It's what we did. We don't do that anymore. We just design it and everything else is given to somebody else. And that, that's the result of fear. That comes from fear of liability and fear of being sued and all of those things. But that's what it takes. That's what an entrepreneur is. It's taking the risk to go out and, and change the world. And yes, there are risks. There are the potential of, of, and you protect yourself, you educate yourself, you know, you insure yourself and you go and do that. And, and that's actually what we're doing. We're right now, when we move to North Carolina, Five Cat Studio will, will cease to exist and we're going to start a new business in North Carolina and it's going to be residential development. We're going to design and build and sell products. And that's what we're going to do. And so we have, we have many different uh, sources of revenue. Entree Architect is one of them. We have a couple of other things going on. And so that allows us to sort of make that transition. Um, and we, we're closing things down here when we get there. And I'm not saying everybody should do this, but this is what we want to do. Uh, and we're really excited about it. And, and we're going to share everything about it through Entree Architect. We're going to share the process of how we're doing it, why we're doing it, uh, we're hopefully going to uh, join the the world of video creators, and <laughs> and start a, a active YouTube YouTube channel around around it. And so, I think that's because I I not only want to do it for me, but I want to show the profession that it can be done. Because so many architects talk about this development thing that it's the panacea, but it's going to be very hard, and maybe uh, the hardest thing we've ever done. But I want to show that too. But I also want to show that it can be done that we can take control back of our profession and, and make the, the profession a better place for all of us and, and literally change the world from that because we as individual architects can change the world. Yeah. I'm so excited to see your process uh, as you guys are going to, to North Carolina and starting that, that first, that first project. Uh, I hope you can get the YouTube thing going because uh, I think that'll be really exciting and educating to uh, get that behind the scenes uh, feel and and image of what it's really like because I'm sure you're not gonna edit or cut anything out. You're gonna you're gonna put no, it's all gonna the, be real. Yeah. I'm gonna lose the rest of my hair. <laughs> uh, Eric, what uh, what uh, I don't know how to transition that, Eric. <laughs> What uh, <laughs> he left you hanging there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what uh, what do you think the future of architecture is going to look like? I mean, the, I think the future of architecture is just what we make it. I I think there are. You know, I'm not great at kind of navel gazing here. I'm more of a practitioner and and executioner. So I think architects a lot of times uh, they just spend time kind of complaining about things, and that that just really bothers me how we're not valued in in the architectural world you know instead of just doing something about it so that's what i appreciate about you know this kind of conversation i mean 
three people here who are doing something about it. Um, and it's probably going to be wrong. Um, <laughs> most of what we do is probably going to be wrong. And, and I'm, me too, Mark, looking forward to seeing the failures. Cause I mean, that's, that's how we learn. Right. Um, right. I think, um, you know, we need more education. I think we are doing um, a pretty poor job of educating people on the value of, uh, of architects in the world. And so I think the future of architecture is, you know, us showing people that we've already discussed, you know, what that looks like. I'm also seeing this transition from architects abdicating all of the authority in a project and just being kind of order takers. Uh, they're only, we're only plugging into one part of this process. And so, you know, Mark already talked about this, but you know, everything from site acquisition through construction and even beyond that into ownership. I mean, the, the true definition, the IRS definition of passive income is, you know, it's a rental income. So we contribute all this design horsepower to a project and then we walk away at the end of it where we're not, in, you know, we don't have any ownership stake in that. I think there are business models that we're not taking advantage of as architects, you know, becoming equity partners in these projects. Um, even if that means, you know, you're foregoing some fee for that um, to start perpetuating a better business model. I think that, um, you know, the future of architecture and our relevance in the built world is going to depend on us finding a financially viable way to do that. And there's lots of ways to do it. Um, there's plenty of business people and developers who've figured out a way to do it. We just happen to be kind of their pawns right now. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm interested in all of it. I, I can't pretend to have an answer what the future of architecture is. I can only see kind of a little bit you know, it's like seeing as far as the headlights are shining in front of me and I'm super excited by what I see, but I also, I don't know what that looks like. And for me, that that's part of the excitement of it. Like I love not knowing kind of what, what's coming next. It's just this whole series of experiments and um, I'm excited by all of them. The ones that pan out, I'm going to invest in. Yeah. And I'm excited about as you mentioned, kind of what we're the three of us and I'm sure other people, um, I know there's a few that escape me right now, but um, kind of what we're doing is educating in a different format. The way that school is done right now uh, and has been done is has become antiquated and isn't really, you know, hitting the points that people want or keeping their attention. Uh, so we have a whole generation that are turning to YouTube and Instagram and and that's kind of where they're getting their information, their news, their, their different uh, and education as well. So kind of going through this avenue and putting a face and a personality to it is really going to hit home with people, um, both the youth and people that are further along in their careers, uh, which I'm really excited about. And I think as more people kind of start to turn this to this direction, and providing more content, uh, I think that's going to add to the profession as well. And it it's not a, a competition because everybody's going to look at something from a different lens, a different perspective, a different interest. Uh, so we'll we'll as a community be able to cover all the the holes that aren't covered in traditional education. So I'm really excited about that and and the effect that that will have on our profession as we move forward. Um, I mean, even if you just think about. You know, people have asked me, oh, do you teach at a university or would you teach it, you know, if been approached for those teaching jobs? Like if you think about the number of downloads that each of your podcasts get or, you know, how many readers your blog posts have or how many viewers of my video, like think about a pro career professor at a university. Yeah. Like how many students will they have taught over their lifetime? Mm -hmm. Like 
probably not even close to the number of downloads that you guys have. I mean, it's an incredible like lever that yeah. we have. And, yeah. and I love this idea that, you know, education is becoming democratized by this plat platforms like YouTube and Instagram and podcasts. I mean, it's, it's an amazing uh, thing. And, it, you know, especially if you think about people who can't afford to pay for an architectural education, people in, you know, most of the world doesn't have access to the information that we have and we're able to just spread it out there and plant these little seeds. I mean, that's, it's amazing what, what's happening, the shift in the profession just from, our voices is it's incredible to think about what that looks like in 10 or 15 years yeah and in my local communities um uh having this free education and resource for people is going to be huge as we move forward not only for people that are, that you know normally have access and we're just filling those gaps but people that like you mentioned don't have that access it's uh it's going to completely change things as we go mm -hmm. forward so um, Mark, did you have any closing comments before we jump into our last seg uh, segment? Uh, well, I think that the internet is, is changing the world. I mean, I think that, um, we're in, we're at the very, very seeds of the, of the internet revolution. We're living that change. You know, we've, we've seen it start and we're at the very, very early stages of it. And so, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. It's a vert, it's a different world because of the internet and the and the shifts that are going to happen in education and and retail and and you know business and the way business is run is all going to be completely different. We can't even imagine what the future of the world is going to look like in a very relatively short amount of time. Within our lifetimes, it's going to be unrecognizable, mm -hmm. and it's it's exciting to be. At the very imagine being at the very early stages of the industrial revolution yeah. and seeing those those shifts happen in your lifetime it's it's very exciting yeah all right we're gonna shift to a new segment that we're introducing to find out a little bit more about our guests that we have on our show and this segment is called what was that like We'll start with you, Eric. What was it like first time interning or, or that whole internship process? Yeah, uh, terrifying. I mean, it's, it's a trial by fire. Um, <laughs> and I think you, you learn pretty quick um, what you don't know, right? <laughs> um, there, was, there was a project that um, this house we were building um, and the client was interviewing three contractors. We sort of pre-selected three and they, they, gave, they each gave bids. And there was one contractor who was pretty far below the others in their bid and so went back to him and said, look, what, what did you leave out? You clearly like something's missing here and went through all the numbers, didn't leave anything out. We said to the owner, like, you got to throw out the high and the low and you got to go with the middle one. And the middle one was a great builder. We, we knew that would be a good process. So they said, no, we're, we're not doing that. We're going with the low guy. So they went with the low guy and they were trying to save fee. So we weren't being paid to do a lot of construction administration. So they said, let's pick a couple of you know, waypoints and go make a site visit at those waypoints. So one of those was after the foundation was in and, you know, they were just going to get started framing the first floor deck. So I went out there and uh, I, I, when I got out there, the pier, it was a pier foundation. The piers were all over the place, like no, nothing plums or nothing level. It was like, it was a complete disaster. And um, they had already framed the first floor deck and they were working on the first floor walls. And I looked under the foundation and like our structural members not even hitting the piers and the posts, like, uh, like a major mistake. So I was just, I went back to the owner. I said, 
look, we got a problem. Like these guys just, I know, I know what they left out of their bid. It was like experience. Um, (laughs) So, so they said, okay, well, what do we do? You know? And so I'm talking with my boss at the time and I said, wait, you know, there's provisions in the contract for this. Let's just use one of the provisions to, to let them go. And so I went through the contract and, and I emailed the owner. I said, look, we're not lawyers here, but you know, if it were us, we would use this provision and just say, you, under this provision, your contract is terminated. And um, so I, I said, just make sure you review it with a lawyer before, before you go there. And so you know, like 10 minutes later, after I send the email, I get copied on an email where they fire the contractor based on provision X, whatever that I told them to use. And, uh, you know, the contract I expected, okay, it's going to hit the fan now. The contractor is going to be really ticked. Um, instead, you know, not long after that contractor emails back and says, great, we'll take the, um, you know, we'll take our remainder of our profit and overhead, uh, within 14 days as the contract specifies. And, uh, yep, they kind of did one of those. I was like, what? (laughs) So I go back and I look at the contract and, um, the provision was at the bottom of this page and I flipped to the next page and there it is. It says, if you use this provision, contractor is due their full overhead and profit for the entire project. I mean, they were just in the beginning of this thing. So those mistakes when you make, I mean, just extremely painful. Obviously the owner is ticked. <laughs> My boss is pretty ticked at me. Um, and as an intern, uh, you get to look to the boss and say, Hey, what do we do? You know, it's, <laughs> it's someone else's firm and business that you're learning on. So those are great lessons for interns to have under other people's tutelage. <laughs> and that's why I don't want to bring anyone on yet. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Good insurance, man. It's worth it. <laughs> uh, Mark internship. What was that like? Yeah, I, I have a, a similar story, sort of, uh, of being an intern, getting more responsibility than I probably should have had, and, uh, and making a, a mistake. You know, I, I worked with, it was a firm with three principals, and I basically became the secondhand man to one of the principals, you know, the senior principal. And so he was, you know, he basically would design and sketch, and then I would do everything else. You know, he would say, I want it to look like this, and then you would go and you would design it. You'd go back to him and he would modify it and then you'd design it. And then so you, it was CAD and then we'd put it into CAD and then you do the construction drawings, you do the, you know, the bidding, you do the everything, right? And he's just sort of there making sure that everything stands out and, and is in, in control. So we were on this project. It was, a, it was an addition, a fellowship hall and an educational uh, wing to a church. And I did the full specifications and it went to bid and it went into construction and I would go every week to the construction meetings, much like Eric, under experienced, but running the construction meetings. And um, one day the windows showed up. I'm like, great, there's the windows. They're going to look great. And uh, the meeting starts. And the first thing that I, saw, I knew there was something wrong because the owner was not happy. And I didn't really know why he wasn't happy because the project was going great and the project looked great and the windows were there and they were going to get put in soon. And he's like, why are the windows Santone or gray? He said, and they're not gray. Anderson Santone is a tan, right? And, uh, and he said, why are the windows gray? They should be white. I'm like, well, they're Santone and they're part of the overall scheme that we've designed. I want white. The rest of the church is white. I expect white windows. <laughs> and so I didn't know what to do. You know, it was like the first year of me working. And I said, okay. I'll get back to you on that. And <laughs> I went back to the office and explained it to my, to the principal. 
And he said, well, why are they not white? <laughs> I said, because I designed it to be Santone. I expect Santone. And, uh, and he said, you know, well, I, I'll take care of it is what happened. And, and so uh, he did take care of it. He went back to the window supplier and he had, you know, decades of experience and lots of strong relationships. And he pulled some strings and got the order, you know, taken back and they reordered them and there was no additional cost and, and had the windows fixed. But there's two lessons learned in that story. The first one was, it was my introduction to making a big mistake. And the next meeting, I went back and I took full responsibility with the owner. And he was shocked that I took full response. I told him the whole thing. I told him exactly what happened and why it happened and that it was going to be taken care of. And he already knew because the principal had taken care of it. And, um, and from that day forward, I couldn't make a mistake. You know, and I, I mean, I had his full trust because I owned up to it. And so that taught me right away to be honest and to not try to avoid responsibility and to try to, because that's, there's a lot of fear and it's really easy to just bury your head and say, oh, it's not my fault, somebody else's fault, start pointing fingers. But when you go to an owner, or anybody that you make a mistake with, and you take that full responsibility and say, that's my responsibility, I'm sorry, it'll never happen again. You get full confidence in that person because now they know that you have that ability to, to be honest with it. But I, the other mistake I made is that as soon as I had that conversation with the principal, I took full responsibility there too and told them that I would pay for the mistake. <laughs> and the order was more than my entire salary. <laughs> which I didn't know what I was talking about. You know, I had no idea what I was doing. I just saw, okay, I made him a huge mistake here. I don't want him to, to own it. You know, I felt responsible. I said, well, I'm going to take care of it financially. He said, no, you're not going to take it financially. You know, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. Like, take so, it out of my paycheck. Two lessons learned. You know, know how much things cost before you take full responsibility to pay for them. <laughs> um, but also do take full responsibility when you make a mistake. That it, And it's easier in the long run. And you actually build a, a much stronger relationship with the people around you when you do that. My internship experience wasn't as eventful. I, uh, I was pretty much just a, a glorified um, carrier taking plans to the city back and forth. And I did do a little bit of... Uh, measurements uh here and there but it wasn't as eventful as you guys no <laughs> you definitely learned a lot more than i did so thanks again guys uh really appreciate it it was uh it was good to hang out with you guys yeah thanks. it's been great chatting with you guys good good connecting with you demetrius and and mark as always good to see you man we don't see each other enough yeah amen well uh, hopefully i'll see you in vegas yes <laughs> and at the aia conference for anybody who doesn't know we're yeah. not just going to Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> so thank so Demetrius, you. thank you for including me in this. This has been fun. I, I love talking about this stuff. I could talk about it for hours more. And so thanks for allowing me to be a part of your, your show here. And thank you again to Lance, Eric, and Mark for joining me on this episode. These guys all put out great work. So make sure that you connect with them. For Lance, uh, you can find out more at f9productions.com. That's f the number nine productions.com and inside the firm podcast.com for eric again his is 30 by 40.com all spelled out and 30 by 40.com slash youtube and for mark entrearchitect.com e-n-t-r-e architect.com and thank you again for hanging out with us if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. And while you're there, please rate, like the show, and forward a link to your friend. 
Your support is the only way that the show grows. Don't forget to check out spacespodcast.com for more info. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcast. You know, just um, making the point and like, really, I'm just making like, I'm no chemical engineer. I don't know what what's in spray foam. I just <laughs> see the guys in the suits and I can figure yeah, it out. That's legit. Yeah, I totally understand. That makes sense. <laughs> you got you, know? you got gas masks on and everything. Something's up. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And then I use the test of like, okay, like how much would I freak out if my kid was gnawing on that building material? Well, if it was a piece of wood, I wouldn't be freaking out that much. Okay, but if it was a piece of pressure treated or if it was like there were none on the foam, you know, then I would be really freaking out. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.